This is the Daily Signal podcast for November 22nd. That is Thanksgiving. And we hope you're all spending some quality time with family and friends. But as you do, we are going to consider the origins of this great American holiday. Dr. Tracy McKenzie, a historian at Wheaton College, says Americans have a bit of a faulty memory when it comes to the actual first Thanksgiving. He'll give us the historical version. Well, Thanksgiving is a special day in this country, not just because of the turkey and football and relatives, but also because of the historical memory that lies at the heart of it. The story of the pilgrims and the Indians is our national story, which means we'd better get it right. And to do that, we have the honor of speaking with Dr. Tracy McKenzie over the phone. Dr. McKenzie is professor of American history at Wheaton College, where he serves as chair of the history department. And he's author of the book, The First Thanksgiving, What the Real Story Tells Us About Loving God and Learning from History. And also, full disclosure here, Dr. McKenzie is a former professor of mine and uh, is, is still a good friend to this day. So, Dr. McKenzie, thank you for calling in. Uh, it's my pleasure, Daniel. I'm glad to talk with you. So, uh, Dr. McKenzie, I think all of us have seen uh, the, and grown up with those pictures of the pilgrims eating a big nice turkey uh, Thanksgiving uh, meal, sometimes with the Indians there at Plymouth. Uh, Give us the straight scoop here. Uh, Are those pictures accurate? Uh, Well, I think you know the answer to that, Daniel. Uh, The the answer is not very. Um, Most of our images of that event really date to um, two to two and a half centuries later. So the the late 19th century is when most of those images really uh, begin to crystallize. If I were going to try to very briefly uh, describe for you what I think the setting uh, would have looked like at the time, uh, it would probably sound to you a lot more like um, maybe a Fourth of July barbecue or something like that. Uh, it would have been outdoors. Um, the pilgrims had almost no furniture uh, to speak of in 1621, so we would imagine them sitting on the ground. Um, they're uh, eating with their hands because they have very few utensils. It would have been uncommon for them to have really anything much more than a knife. Um, Certainly not a fork. Those aren't really in use much among um, common people at that time. So they're sitting on the ground, they're eating with their hands, and they're consuming copious quantities of uh, meat of some kind. Uh, The evidence would say lots of waterfowl, uh, which is something that the the record does suggest. Uh, No specific reference to turkeys with regard to uh, the celebration, but we know from other sources that uh, in the autumn the sky would just grow dark with uh, geese and ducks and swans and herons and cranes, all of which could have been on the menu. Um, but most of the fixings, uh, most of the side dishes that we um, would expect would not have been there. Sweet potatoes weren't indigenous to the area. Um, there were lots of cranberries, but no sugar. So if you wanted to have a really tart uh, side dish, I suppose you could. They wouldn't have had pumpkin pie. They almost certainly had stewed pumpkin, uh, but they didn't have sugar. They didn't have uh, flour for crust. They didn't have ovens to bake pies in. Uh, so that wouldn't have been there um, uh, either. They also might have had eel. I'll just add that uh, because uh, they bragged very much on the fat and juicy uh, eels available in the area. And with regard to vegetables, their most common vegetables would have been turnips and um, maybe cabbages and carrots. So I always say a, a more authentic Thanksgiving meal, sit on the ground and have turnips and eel. 
<laughs> well, uh, good luck making that catch on. I think I'm okay with our revisions. Uh, let's say we've improved it a little bit. But um, I think you'd also touched upon other myths that had happened. Uh, one of them being, of course, you know, we talk so much about Thanksgiving and religious freedom and the pilgrims coming here for religious freedom. But I believe your book indicates that the story is a little more complicated than that. That's right, Kate. Uh, in fact, when I think about um, things that we could learn from the pilgrims, the kinds of questions that we could ask that, that really could lead to life-changing kinds of conversations with them, uh, the question of why the pilgrims came to New England is right at the top of that list. Um, our common, uh, really brief explanation of their motives says that they came uh, to flee religious persecution and to find a place of religious liberty. And that's um, sort of 50% right. They certainly wanted um, uh, to find a new home where they would be able to worship uh, God as they believed that the Scripture uh, required them to. But that's not the same thing as saying that they came uh, fleeing um, religious persecution, or in fact that they lacked religious freedom where they uh, at the time lived. We we so often forget the part of the pilgrim story uh, that takes them uh, from England, not to New England directly, but actually to Holland. So from about 1608 to 1620, they're living in Leiden, which was a city of 40-some-odd thousand, for its day large, cosmopolitan, pluralistic. And uh, the pilgrim writers say it's a place where they're actually enjoying considerable uh, religious liberty, and they actually believe that their congregation uh, spiritually is, is flourishing. So um, they're not uh, motivated to leave Holland primarily because of uh, religious persecution. They hope to find a similar kind of religious liberty in uh, North America that they enjoy. Uh, what they're talking about in terms of motives for leaving uh, are uh, concerns that have to do with two broad categories. One has to do with the um, attributes of the uh, surrounding culture, the way that the pilgrim writers describe it. Uh, they are characterizing it as a very permissive culture, a culture that is um, difficult for them uh, as parents uh, trying to raise uh, their children faithfully. Uh, they believe that, that they're losing their children. That's actually the language that they use, that they're losing their children to the surrounding culture in some ways. I'm sure that and then they also emphasize the economic context. Um, most of the individuals that left England for, for Leiden um, were rural. Uh, they were farmers by trade. Uh, but in Leiden, uh, they are in this, uh, for today, uh, very industrial kind of city. Uh, They're working as uh, weavers, uh, as peace workers, uh, pretty much uh, from dawn to dusk, six days uh, a week, and they're struggling to survive. Uh, and so they're hoping to find um, a new home uh, where life will simply be a little less arduous. The reason I think that's very important uh, is that when we describe the pilgrim story as a story of, of fleeing persecution, uh, we'll, you know, we'll nod our head admiringly in a sense, but very few of us, at least in the United States, <clears throat> can wholly relate uh, to, to what we think we're describing. But the pilgrim's concerns, at least the ones that they're emphasizing, are actually much more mundane and I think much more relatable. Um, they're talking about the cares of the world uh, that are weighing them down. Um, and and I, I think it makes their story immediately um, totally pertinent and relevant to us. Well, Dr. McKenzie, uh, something else that you discuss in your book, uh, which 
uh, comes down the line after they've left Holland and, and head to America is the Mayflower Compact. And of course, uh, a lot of us, uh, a lot of Americans remember the Mayflower Compact as a uh, as a, a seminal uh, document, if not in our government, uh, at least in our historical memory and sense of identity. Uh, can you uh, flesh out what the Mayflower Compact was and uh, how should we remember it? Uh, great question, Daniel. I can tell you just really quickly what it what it was, and then we might uh, debate on how we should remember it. But uh, the, the Mayflower Compact is a kind of covenant, that's a term that they would have used, uh, that the um, free adult males on the Mayflower are ultimately going to sign off on um, after they have uh, arrived off the coast of Massachusetts and more or less uh, identified a place uh, that they're going to make a permanent home for themselves. They have been blown off course. This is a pretty familiar part of the story. Uh, they've landed uh, significantly farther north than they had anticipated. And that's significant because where they've actually ended up is beyond the northernmost northern boundary of um, the uh, Virginia Company's domain, which was uh, a joint stock corporation that had been chartered by uh, James I and had given the, the Pilgrim uh, group uh, a, a kind of permission and authority to settle within their, their boundaries. So um, uh, arriving uh, off the coast of Cape Cod, they're really, uh, in a sense, outside the boundaries of authority of existing English uh, presence there, uh, and uh, in a certain sense, operating in a kind of state of nature, almost, if you want to think of it that way. Uh, and so in agreeing to a covenant uh, to uh, basically um, arrive jointly at laws that they will uh, mutually pledge to submit to uh, they are they are establishing a kind of framework uh, for self-government. That, however, though, I think is a little misleading, at least in the way that we remember it, because you're right that um, we tend to remember the Mayflower Compact as one of those founding documents uh, of, um, of the American story. Uh, and I think in so doing, we tend to impute values to the pilgrims in the 1620s that they would not have have held. Um, the, the Mayflower Compact actually begins with a kind of pledge of submission to uh, the, the king. Uh, and um, if, if anything, it is at least as much an assertion of the divine right uh, of the British monarch as it is to some sort of natural right uh, to self-government. Um, the pilgrims, what we know from later on in their experience in Plymouth, they they don't hold a lot of the political values that we today often impute to them. They certainly weren't uh, democratic. Uh, they were absolutely hierarchical in their political values. Um, they tended to identify certain elites among their midst that they believed were, were sort of naturally endowed with qualities that um, qualified them to lead uh, and others to follow. Uh, and they saw that as a kind of obligation. So one of the first laws passed in 1627 in Plymouth makes it illegal uh, for someone who is chosen governor to decline. Uh, if you declined, you had been uh, uh, hit with an enormous fine. Um, they don't have adult male suffrage, uh, or at least not universal adult male, male suffrage, and um, they are very hierarchical. So I, I think the temptation, I think, will be for us to imagine uh, the pilgrims as sort of proto-Democrats that 
uh, envisioned the future to be pretty much um, what we now take for granted. So we've talked um, a lot about some of our misunderstandings or historical revisions of Thanksgiving. Could you talk a bit about how did sort of this modern myth of Thanksgiving get created in the United States? And even if not historically accurate, what was the sentiments driving it? Uh, Great question, Kate. You know, historical traditions evolve often in, in very sort of haphazard ways. Uh, and often there will be a number of variables there at play in developing the kinds of historical uh, memories that we have. One of the things that I think is so fascinating about the evolution of the Thanksgiving holiday is the relationship between that holiday and memory of the pilgrims. It's a really tenuous kind of relationship. Um, the, the main source that we have about the Plymouth Colony was the history that their longtime governor, William Bradford, wrote which he called Of Plymouth Plantation. Um, of Plymouth Plantation in manuscript form disappeared uh, for a period of, of well over a century. It was probably passed around and then gradually sort of vanished from view. And it's actually rediscovered in the middle of the 1800s, so more than two centuries later, uh, in the library of the Bishop of London. Uh, and it's brought back to the United States with great fanfare uh, in the 1850s. Uh, but by that time, it was already the case that in New England, there had developed this um, regular pattern of celebrating fall Thanksgivings. Uh, often there would be days of humiliation and fasting in the spring when the uh, planting was finished, asking God's blessing uh, on the growing crop. And then they'd have a day of Thanksgiving in the fall uh, after uh, the harvest. And that was very much a regional uh, tradition. As late as the Civil War, uh, Thanksgiving was primarily celebrated in New England in an area settled by New England migrants. Most Southerners, for example, had nothing to do with Thanksgiving. They associated it with pharisaical, self-righteous Yankees, uh, <laughs> and they just didn't observe it. Uh, conversely, uh, New England tended not to celebrate Christmas. Uh, the Pilgrims very famously didn't celebrate Christmas. They said there's no... A uh, place in Scripture that authorizes uh, the celebration of Jesus' birth. There's no Scripture that tells us when it occurred, uh, and they saw it as an invention that the Catholic Church had basically um, uh, created. Uh, and so you have this really interesting pattern in which the South celebrates Christmas and the North celebrates Thanksgiving, and never the two shall meet. Uh, the first time that you really would say that Thanksgiving becomes a national holiday is during the American Civil War. Uh, and that would not have been realized at the time. We see it more from, from hindsight. But Abraham Lincoln in 1863 issues a proclamation uh, in the, the fall, uh, making the fourth uh, Thursday in November of that year uh, a day of, of national thanksgiving. And he primarily means it as a day of thanksgiving for the way that God was aiding northern armies in the war uh, against the South. Uh, and that also doesn't endear Southerners to uh, a Thanksgiving holiday. It's really the late 19th century. It's really the 1880s, 1890s, before Thanksgiving is broadly celebrated uh, around the United States. And I joke, but also sort of mean it seriously, that one of the things that um, uh, ultimately reconciles Southerners to Thanksgiving is the development of football. And by the 1890s, the... Um, a national championship game for what is the forerunner of the NCAA was being held annually in New York City on Thanksgiving Day. 
uh, and well before 1900, uh, the tradition of having football games on Thanksgiving Day is sweeping across the country, uh, and um, uh, Southerners find out that the holiday isn't that bad after all. <laughs> oh, that's that's uh, that's a, that's such an interesting evolution there, uh, and of course, looking at Thanksgiving just in the last hundred years, uh, how it's uh, you know you've had. Uh, the introduction of Black Friday and the, the shopping and all of that leading up to Christmas. Macy's Parade. Ma- Macy's Parade, yes. Um, so, Dr. Kinsey, um, this is so interesting. I'm just you know curious, what do you, uh, what would you say about uh, remembering Thanksgiving? Today it's, you know, I think a lot of us would be very, you know, surprised to learn that the founding era uh, was not a, an era in which Thanksgiving was, was uh, a, a public tradition. Um, when we remember Thanksgiving, almost 400 years ago now, uh, at, at the beginning of of uh, uh, the, the new world, um, how should we remember Thanksgiving, and how can we rightly uh, honor the the pilgrims who came here, and how can we celebrate Thanksgiving in a way that uh, that that is right? That's a good question, and one that even now um, I'm still, I guess, working through myself. But I, I do have a, um, a few thoughts. For all of the, the work that I as a historian do in sort of uh, scraping away the kinds of myths that have developed over the years, I, I, I find that the, the true story is actually more interesting and more inspiring uh, than uh, the myths that we have uh, developed over time. I do find a, a great deal about the Pilgrim story um, r- really admirable. Uh, when, when you stop and think about the uh, venture that they were a part of, the great personal toll that it had um, inflicted on them, when you think about that celebration, uh, it was a celebration predominantly of widowers and orphans. Uh, there had been 18 wives on the Mayflower, um, 14 of whom had died in the first winter. And so most of the married couples now were separated by death. Uh, large numbers of the children now had lost parents. There were some children present who had lost all parents and siblings. Um, it was an overwhelmingly uh, male, single now male gathering um, and also a young gathering, uh, in that about half of the of the group was um, teenagers or younger. And so to have any kind of celebration in that context, I think, is a real tribute to a kind of uh, steadfast faith that, that I totally admire. The other thing that I always think of personally about the pilgrims at this time and, and other times in the year is just the, the sense of identity that they themselves have. It's a, it's a tragic thing in a sense that we have lost the weight of the term that they used for themselves or that William Bradford used in describing them, this concept of pilgrim. So it means nothing to us except um, a kind of label for the passengers of the Mayflower. But when, when Bradford calls them pilgrims, he's actually writing about their departure from Leiden. And he knew, and they knew, that many of them uh, would likely die in the undertaking, that the chances of seeing loved ones that they were saying goodbye to were were slim. Uh, and uh, Bradford says that they were deeply moved and their tears flowed like water. But he says that they looked up to the heavens and they comforted their spirits because they knew that they were pilgrims. 
by which he meant they recognized that their hope ultimately was not in their immediate prosperity. It was not in any kind of bounty that they might encounter in a new world. Uh, their hope was ultimately in God's sovereign love and care for them and the promise of eternity. And, and that's just a vision of that idea of pilgrimage that I think we've entirely uh, lost. And so one of the things I try to do and I challenge others to do uh, is just to to tell ourselves, to remind us that we are pilgrims. Um, and that sense, in that sense, we're sort of bound together with them if we uh, cling to that same sense of identity. So much to think about there. One little bit less serious question. I believe you also mentioned the contra to all the picture books I read as a child and costumes and school plays. The pilgrims did not wear black with huge white collars. <laughs> Can you, uh, I am so what sorry. did they actually wear? Yeah, they, they didn't wear black and they didn't wear those incredibly high hats and they didn't wear enormous buckles on every sort of appendage. <laughs> um, yeah, again, that's another example of how in our mind's eye we have an image of the pilgrims that pretty much dates to the late uh, 19th century. Um, here we can speak with a little bit of confidence because the the pilgrims, among many things, were amazing record keepers. And so even as early as the late 1620s, we begin to have surviving records of their wills. And one of the things that happened when someone would die, of course, is that they would uh, typically make a list of all their property um, that was to be divided among among heirs. And in the early 17th century, one of the most valuable kinds of property people have is is clothing. Uh, and so they would list their clothing and actually talk about, about it in some detail. So the pilgrims loved bold, bright, bold colors. And so that's another thing, I suppose, when we're imagining them sitting on the ground eating with their hands, let's imagine them wearing orange and red and yellow. <laughs> Uh, not not black. Uh, they weren't wearing buckles because they actually uh, disliked any kind of adornment like that. The women didn't wear uh, jewelry of any kind uh, and, and so forth. So they wouldn't have had that, but lots of bright colors. In fact, the, the, the will for uh, William Bradford, the inventory of his estate, shows that he had a red vest and a purple cape, among other things. <laughs> So these these folks uh, were would have been pretty striking, I think, uh, in their fashion sense, if nothing else. <laughs> That's remarkable. Well, Dr. McKenzie, it's a pleasure to have you on uh, the podcast. Uh, the book is called The First Thanksgiving, published by University Press. Dr. McKenzie, thank you for calling in. Uh, Daniel and Kate, thank you so much. It's been my pleasure. Well, we'll leave it there for today. Thanks so much for listening to the Daily Signal podcast brought to you from the Robert H. Bruce Radio Studio at the Heritage Foundation. Please be sure to subscribe on iTunes, Google Play, or SoundCloud. And please leave us a review or a rating on iTunes to give us any feedback. Have a happy Thanksgiving. We'll see you tomorrow. You've been listening to the Daily Signal podcast, executive produced by Kate Trinko and Daniel Davis. Sound designed by Michael Gooden, Lauren Evans, and Thalia Rampersad. For more information, visit DailySignal.com.